what are you what are you up to today uh uh just procrastinating as usual you know all the uh, 101 things that one puts uh, on oneself and doesn't do Look, to be honest, Burge is getting a little bit self-conscious about all these questions and, and talking about himself. And uh, he keeps asking me, when, when are we going to interview some other people and not just have me interrogating him? But see, I have the benefit of knowing Berger pretty well. After a couple of years, I understand his values and I've come to understand some of his background and what it is that's made him a fearless humanitarian advocate and someone who I think is the exemplar actually of a pretty good doctor. And I admire those people, I admire him, and I want to see those values and those ideas uh, widely promulgated. And I think if we have a good basis of understanding where it is that he comes from, what it is that he stands for, you'll appreciate why I think he's a special voice. And ironically, those are the reasons why he's been attacked. Uh, he's been attacked uh, quite ferociously by some uh, critics, and I think that that ex says more about them than it does about him. But it also says something about his um, discomfort with compromise. And it's really important to understand what feeds into that. I assure you all, we'll move on to using the knowledge that he has, the values that he has, and the mind that he has to also talk to other people and find out a lot more stuff that should be helpful for all of us if we're interested in being humanitarian advocates, particularly in healthcare. Where are you from? So I'm the child of Jewish refugees. Uh, mm -hmm. My mother left Berlin in 1938 at the age of 14. My father was uh, born of Polish Jewish parents in London. He was the uh, last of their children. He was the only one to be born in Britain. Uh, they fled the pogroms in 1905, uh, actually came to England, didn't like it, went to Belgium, then fled Belgium in 1914 when the Germans invaded that time. Uh, and then came to England. So he was very much a refugee stock. My mother uh, was the daughter of a doctor. He was a celebrity. He was actually a celebrity doctor in Berlin. He was the doctor to the Ufa Film Studios. So he this was, was a, your, your... My grandfather. Your grandfather was yes. a celebrity doctor in Berlin. He was. In the 90s, he was, he was a medical orderly in the First World War in the German army on the Russian front and on the Western front. He won the Iron Cross for saving wounded in no man's land. And after the end of the First World War, he went to medical school, qualified as a doctor, became a, uh, he was a GP and gynecologist. He was the doctor to the Ufa Film Studios, like I said, which was, you know, all the Marlena Dietrich, um, uh, 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 Lottie Lentz, Kurt Jurgens, all the, all the kind of really big stars of the 1920s. He wow. and his wife used to have, have lots of parties. He was also a member of the Institute of Sexology in Berlin, right. which, was, which was, and he wrote a, a very, a kind of a history of sexuality was extremely uh, uh, graphic. Uh, it was called it was called uh, Sex and Sin, right. and it was a history of human sexuality through the ages. Extremely graphic. Is this available? Uh, uh, it's it's still in existence. It was on the It was on the burned list. The the Nazis burned it, uh, and he was he was also he was also a crime. Uh, wrote a, had a crime serial in the Berlin Evening Paper and wrote a number, a couple of uh, crime novels, detective novels, one of which you was actually these in about... Your, um, in, your, in your famous bookcase, are these things? Yes, I do, actually. Uh, I have. Us? I've got them. I, I sure, I'll show you. Not that I don't believe you. I'm just <laughs> intrigued by the... 
the yeah. Chrome uh, and just one sec. technology connection. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got sex Berlin, and sin. All places. Uh, so this is this is sex and sin. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's uh, it couldn't have been published in Britain until pretty much after the Lady Chatterley trial in 1961, because it is so graphic. So yeah, so he was a he was a very interesting character, very larger than life. He got on with everybody. He was very non-ideological. He was a mm. bit of a hedonist. He loved the Bohemian Berlin of the 20s and the early 30s. Right. Uh, and one of his friends was actually a guy called von Heldorf, who was the police chief in Berlin. And von Heldorf said to him, listen, Heinz, you can stay. But when I tell you, you have to go, you have to go. Uh, so one day my mother, and it's a, it's a bit of a chilling story. My mother, her, mm -hmm. her, he was divorced. My mother lived with her grandparents. She was 12 in 1936. Mm. She used to go every day to his GP surgery and she would sit in the waiting room. And when he'd finished surgery in the afternoon, he would take her downstairs to the Cafe Kranzler, which was the society cafe of the day. It still exists. It's mm. on the corner of the Kurfürstendamm and the Joachimsthalerstrasse in Germany. Uh, and he, they would go for a, an ice cream. And she's sitting there one day, 1936, waiting for him to finish. Phone rings. Receptionist takes the phone, goes and gets him out of his surgery. He's wearing his white yeah. coat, as they did at the time. He comes out, takes the call, looks serious, puts the call down, puts the phone down. Uh, and says, uh, I'm afraid I won't see you for a long while, Inga. Uh, and von Heldorf had sent a car to take him to the airport that hour to get on a flight to London. So the, so the police chief of Berlin yes. is sending a car to pick up your grandfather to yes. get him out of the country. Yes, because he could see that he was about to be arrested. But the daughter was not yes. to go with him so so they so she stayed with her grandparents his parents right. uh, and they they thought at the time that the nazis wouldn't do anything to the children and the old people so that to be a which a, turned a, out to be incorrect so they actually stayed another two years by this time heinz had he was only allowed to stay in britain for two weeks because they didn't want any more German Jewish doctors. The BMA didn't want. So he went to South America. So hang he, on, he, he, you're saying that at the time, the British Medical Association was resistant to, to lots more German oh, Jewish doctors turning up. Had this had been a real phenomenon for them in, yes, in, in Britain? They didn't want any more and they were very explicit about it. Uh, and there was an interesting article actually published in the BMJ in 2014, at which time I was a director of the BMJ, which is kind of ironic, uh, talking about the BMA's failure to challenge uh, what was happening in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, despite acknowledging that it was happening. Uh, so that, that was quite interesting. But anyway, so, so he, went, he went to... Can I just... Drill, drill down on that for a second. So as, mm. as a director of the BMJ that's published yes. in this article in 2014, did you have any involvement editorially? No, no, I didn't. Out of that point? I didn't it, so it, you it, were coincidentally I, yes. as a director, a, a grandson of a former German Jewish doctor who had sought refuge in Britain. That's correct. And, and was rejected and was rejected. Presumably he would have rather stayed close to his family in yeah, Europe yeah. than gone yeah, to, yeah. where did he go to? So he went, he wanted to stay in Britain, he couldn't. Uh, so he couldn't get a visa. Uh, so he went to Argentina and Brazil. And he lived in Argentina and Brazil for about two years. Uh, and then he realized he was making a living, it wasn't great. By this time, his ex-wife was living in Santiago in Chile. What year uh, are we they were talking separated. about now? Uh, we're talking 1938. Right. So 1938, he realized that he had a connection in Egypt. 
Okay. So he had he had treated a man called Nahas Pasha when he had visited yes. Berlin in the early 1930s. He was a senior uh, Egyptian diplomat, politician, whatever. Anyway, he became president or prime minister of Egypt in the meantime. Yes. So he went to the Egyptian embassy in, I think, Buenos Aires, showed Nahas Pasha's card, uh, and was given a visa to Egypt, where he went, uh, he got a boat, went to Egypt. And, yes. uh, and as you do, uh, ended up staying there for 20 years. He gave up medicine. He became a scrap merchant and uh, actually made a fortune at the end of the Second World War, uh, dismantling British Army and Air Force camps. No shortage of scrap was there at the no end of the shortage war. of scrap. The, there during, was... during and at the end of a war. Yeah, scrap absolutely. Everywhere. And he actually had these long RAF low loader trucks that they used to move aircraft fuselages on. And he was actually the guy that transported the statue of Ramses II from Aswan up to Cairo, apparently after the war. Mm. Um, my mother visited him there in 1950, 14 years after she'd last seen him. She's 25, so she was born in 1924, so she was 25. So she's she, 25, so from the age of 12 to 25? Yeah, to 25, 26, yeah. Has she seen him at all in that time? No, she hasn't seen him at all. So your mother's in the care of your your father's, your grandfather's parents all that That's time? That's right, the grandfather's parents. So the story there is that 1938, September 38, uh, my great uncle, grandfather's brother, uh, he had actually left Berlin in 1933 when Hitler first came to power. He'd gone to London. He'd set up a chemical factory. He was a British citizen. He was doing quite well. The grandparents said, we're in our 70s. They're not gonna do anything to the old people and the children. We're not coming. He actually made a trip back to Germany on his British passport in 1938 to visit the grandparents. And he said, you have to come. This is your grandfather's brother. Correct. Who was living in London. Yeah. And he said, you have to come because they will kill you. And the grandparents said, no, Carl, you're being, you know, hysterical and blah, 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 melodramatic. Anyway. They did eventually come and they left uh, in September 38, just before Kristallnacht. Uh, and they actually had a, um, uh, they had a, 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 a ceramic shop, a crockery shop uh, that was completely smashed uh, in the wow. Kristallnacht um, uh, riots. So, so they really got out uh, in, uh, by the skin of their teeth. Uh, my mother, who was very bright, uh, left at the age of 14. By the time she did her school certificate in England, she uh, had the marks to get into medical school. Her grandmother said, good Jewish girls don't go to medical school and cavort with all those medical students. And anyway, there's no money for you to go, which as it turned out was not true because her father had made money available. Uh, so when she turned 18, she went out and joined the Royal Air Force. So she then became a mechanic mm. in the Royal Air Force and worked on uh, Lancasters and mosquitoes that were bombing Germany, um, which was kind of odd. Uh, and she was known, uh, she actually changed her name. So she was called Inga Laura. Uh, and she changed her name to Jerry because she was known as that Jerry girl. So she right. became Geraldine. So for the rest of her life, she was Geraldine. But so she'd what, been that um, Jerry girl. So what occurs to me through all of this is that it, it's like a, a, a plot for a movie, a lot of people's mm. lives, compared to the sort of suburban Australian upbringing that I've had. And the people then were living in times of um, 
amazing disruption. Yeah. Incredible existential threats. Yeah. And having to make big decisions about their future in um, uncertain times in the midst of trying to live a happy life. Yeah. To get on with running a business or trying to get on with having a family and a, and a relationship and all yeah. that sort of thing. So do, do you think having this culture baked in as part of your family affected the way you responded to medicine and the way you responded to the onset of the the novel coronavirus pandemic is yeah i mean no no question informed you no question and i think if you talk to anybody who has been a refugee or comes from refugee stock they have a very developed awareness of living on the edge of the abyss Uh, and understanding that the world can change completely at any time. And if if you've grown up with stability and a history of stability in your family, uh, it's very hard to accept that the world can flip on a sixpence uh, and, and, and completely change, and that all your assumptions can be turned upside down. But if you come from that background, it's much easier. It's a very useful experience actually to have had that it's traumatic uh i mean when i grew up uh, i used to have i used to constantly think as a child you know what it would have been like to be in a concentration camp standing in the line for the gas chambers as many of my relatives died of first degree many relatives died in the camps um and, and so that's that's that gives you a sense of insecurity which is nevertheless quite valuable when you are reacting to events in the world so and i think if you talk to any refugee uh or or person of refugee stock they will tell you that and it gives you this perspective and it gives you a sympathy uh for other people in 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 that situation so what language or languages did you speak growing up yeah so uh so my mother uh didn't speak German for about 25 years. She spoke English without an accent. Uh, And in fact, she did her military service in the Royal Air Force with uh, a bunch of girls from the Gorbals in Glasgow, the slum in Glasgow. She she had quite a strong Glasgow accent at the time, but she then developed a a sort of middle-class Oxford English accent. Uh, So she didn't speak German at all. I learned German at school. Um, And it was quite interesting, Uh, there was this, do you speak uh, German now? Yeah, yeah, I speak reasonable German, not not brilliant, uh, but but perfectly adequate. Yeah. Um, my my mother, my parents it was quite funny. My parents, which I think many refugees would understand, they were in Switzerland in the nineteen sixties, looking for a campsite, and they were lost. So my father was driving the car. They had a caravan on the back. They stopped outside a restaurant. And my father said, look, we're in German Switzerland. He said, go in and ask them for a direction. So she goes into the, into the uh, restaurant, gets directions to the campsite, comes out, relays them to my father in the car. And she turns to him and she goes, you know, the strangest thing, she said, they thought I was German. And, and she had totally, for 20 years, just totally dissociated herself from that identity. Um, and she didn't really pick it up again until really towards the end of her life. Uh, and it was, it, she'd sort of, sort of cut it off. So you touched on a couple of times the idea that was prevalent amongst your relatives that nothing would happen to the elderly or the children, that there was a moral mm. boundary beyond which the... Um, uh, genocide of the Jewish people would not step over. Yeah. Um, do you think that that had a basis in any reality or experience, or was it a coping mechanism to to believe that? Because, to my mind, if it's suddenly okay to start killing anyone, 
Mm. then why wouldn't it be okay to kill everyone? Or was it just so disruptive for them to take radical action to prevent it that they needed a some kind of um, mm. myth to believe in that they preferred to believe the, the, the myth than the unwelcome truth? I think it's a combination. And certainly I think it's really important to be aware of how civilized Germany was in the interwar years. It was a very sophisticated place. The Jews, my parents, my, my mother's family were very assimilated middle-class Jews. They thought of themselves as German first and Jewish second. Uh, and that Berlin that they grew up in, it was incredibly sophisticated. You had, you know, the, the, the kind of the Weimar Republic, the, the, these kind of bohemian nightclubs, you know, the whole cabaret film. I mean, that's, that's grounded in reality. Um, and, and, you know, it was a cutting edge of psychoanalysis and it was really the happening place in the late 20s, early 30s. So the notion that all of a sudden this bunch of ignorant thugs, because they all knew that the Nazis were ignorant thugs, uh, and particularly in the early years where Ernst Röhm uh, with his SA thugs was just going around beating up everybody in the streets. The idea that these people would take over such a country and that their friends and neighbors would acquiesce was almost impossible to accept. So it was only relatively visionary people who really understood the possibility of what might happen. So, you know, if Uncle Carl had not gone back to get them, they wouldn't have survived. Um, and, and yes, I think it's just too much. That dislocation of reality is too much for people to accept. So you'll rationalize almost anything. And so as not me, to have to take action. So to me, that, that has reflection in our response to the pandemic and, and in Rhonda mm. McIntyre's excellent book, Dark Winter, yeah. her first chapter is entitled Believe the Unbelievable. Yes. Because when you live in a belle epoque, as we do in a, mm. in a golden time, you get uh, very quickly the human yeah. together a brain adapts to the idea that this is easy and that this is the way it's always going to be. Yeah. But like you, my family was disrupted around the world by war, by the Second mm. World War, and I'm here because of it. And the times between the wars, the, the interbellums are, in fact, um, the unusual yes, part of history. They are the unusual periods. I mean, you are... Um, free of famine, free of plague mm. times are, yes. un are unusual for humans. So it's this ability to um, balance your hypervigilance and mm. uh, your uh, understandable anxiety. How does that, uh, I suppose, inform the, the decisions that you make when you were growing up? Was it something that led you towards medicine or was it something that perhaps pushed you away from it? No, no, it definitely led me towards it. Uh, because it was a way of connecting with, with existential reality, of something that was real, something that had relevance in any uh, human situation, in any era. So, yes, compared to real did. compared to what? You mean re real compared to selling stocks and shares and moving yeah, numbers exactly. around on a piece of paper? Exactly, yeah. Something that where whatever you were doing, it had reality to it um uh and also i, I was i was inculcated that this was a portable pro it was a profession like being a carpenter so that if i had to move i could take it with me and in fact grandfather after 20 years as a stock as a as a scrap merchant in cairo he got expelled from egypt after suez in 1956 ended up back in Germany, penniless again, and became a doctor again after 20 years. So 
in, in Berlin. Lives, aren't they? Just, I know. It's extraordinary. Really extraordinary. And to so, become a GP in Berlin again. Is it, is it possible to separate the experiences that you've you've had that have informed you know your choices in life of going to medicine and so on and the way you view the world is it possible to separate that from jewishness or are the two things completely uh enmeshed because it seems to me the nation of israel responded to the pandemic you know this is my superficial uh, analysis of the way different countries looked yeah. at it as yep, here's another existential threat to our nation, and move yeah. very, very quickly um, yes. to take to take advice and take pretty proactive steps, and particularly in in regard to accessing vaccines and vaccine technology, yeah. very very on the front foot. Um, yeah. Now I know that nationhood and religion and culture are are things that are that are difficult to tease out, but where do you put your your religion in the midst of all of this, if you don't mind my asking. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not a religious Jew, so I don't have a, a kind of religious faith, but obviously I come from that heritage. Um, and, and it's a very sort of tight cultural and genetic uh, heritage. I was reading the other day that uh, it's thought that all the Ashkenazi Jews in Europe are actually descended from a couple of hundred individuals from the town of Erfurt in Germany in, in, in the mid 14th century. So we're a very tight group. Uh, and, and with that kind of cultural expectation of living on the edge of annihilation. So, I mean, yes, of course, that will have informed uh, the Israeli response. I mean, latterly, they've gone like everybody else, but uh, it certainly informed that initial response. It is really interesting how um, the island nation of Australia responded to this threat with fairly rapidly closing the borders, and that was the one mm. thing that kind of led to our success. And the discussion yeah. of the whole pandemic is a, is another topic, but it fascinates me how. Um, the, the the culture affects a public health response every single time because as you've said um before medicine is politics and politics is medicine yeah. so what what happened in between when you took when you how did you end up in medical school and where was that uh that was in in uh, uh london um i didn't have any doubt that i wanted to study medicine uh and uh yeah so i went to uh, london university st george's hospital uh and did a six-year medical course i did a, a an extra year of a, a bsc where i did um a couple of units in philosophy of science which has really helped me actually to understand what's been happening in the pandemic was there a lot of people doing it or was this an unusual side branch yeah, it was an unusual side branch. So I, I was in with the uh, with the philosophy and social science students at UCL University College, uh, doing a, I think it was a unit and a half course on the philosophy of science and social science, which is essentially a kind of foundations of knowledge. What is knowable? How can we come to know it? Uh, uh, you know, what is truth? How do we best? How, can we even approximate towards truth? Um, uh, and, and a, a solid grounding in the scientific method. Uh, and that's really helped me understand what's happening in the pandemic. Uh, and and I, I would identify the majority of our problems as stemming from a lack of adherence to scientific rigor. And that's both through ignorance and design, I think. Um, but it's become very apparent to me that a large body of the medical community has very little understanding of what it is to be a scientist, of what scientific knowledge is. Um, uh, and that's been quite a shock, actually, the degree to which I've come to realize that is the case. Uh, so we've, had a, we've had a lot of 
argument for to to put a concrete example the the issue of the aerosol spread of mm. the recent yes. um pandemic there were a, a lot of doctors who were prepared to argue with aerosol scientists and people whose yes. field it is to to determine the, these kind of things but we had clinical doctors with no scientific basic science mm. uh, experience at all who were very prepared to be adamant about um, scientific principles of which they, they really didn't seem to know much. No, absolutely. And, and you know, okay, so I don't have any quibble with them potentially arguing with aerosol scientists, but not if their arguments are nonsense. And, and that's the problem, you know. Uh, they could easily have... Uh, boned up on the information and, and, and made coherent arguments, but, but they didn't. And the arguments are nonsense. Uh, the arguments against aerosol spread. Uh, and it turns out that for a long time, these arguments have been nonsense and that actually, you know, a lot of uh, infections are, are, are spread by airborne means. I mean, I, I think the most influential philosopher for me uh, was Thomas Kuhn, who was a, an American philosopher of science who in 1967 wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, mm. which uh, uh, kind of built, I think Max, really it was Max Planck who first identified this in the early part of the 20th century. But basically, you know, nothing changes in science really until the current practitioners are retired and or dead. In other words, the uh, the kind of fortress of contemporary scientific knowledge is 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 uh, defended to the death by the current practitioners because we go through a period of learning which is pretty intense. Then yeah. we get into a period of our life where we're where we're practicing, and yes. we're we're not only are we pretty comfortable at that point. Uh, and and used to doing things efficiently with the knowledge that mm. we have, but we also become the leadership within the profession who have the say over who yep. might be appointed to training positions, and and you know this is yep. the way we treat our patients. Now we we pay lip service to to lifelong learning, and we can't be changing what we do every week. But people like Nobel Prize winner Barry Marshall certainly come up against uh the same forces when they're trying to explain that actually stomach ulcers are um caused by helicobacter and we need yep. to be treating that but you have a medical and pharmaceutical industry which have a different understanding and uh, you know again i think we talked before about the shining brand that we have in medicine and also science that we're these kind of noble uh warriors who are out there um our only quest is for knowledge and truth and that is so naive and just just painful in its simplicity because we are humans scientists are humans doctors are humans politicians are humans uh, and, and the reality is that, as you say, once you get to a position in life where you have something to defend, you will defend it. And yep. there is no question that that influences uh, your degree of bias. As um, a novelist said, it, you know, it, it is impossible uh, to persuade a man of something if his salary depends on believing otherwise. It sounds uh, like something H.L. Mencken would say. Yeah, it's, it's one, one of, of H.L. Mencken's contemporaries. I will remember of, it in a minute. One of his, uh, <laughs> and, and it's analogous to, to Mencken's line that it's very difficult to believe that as someone is telling the truth, if you would lie, if you were in their shoes. Yes. So it's a, uh, it, it's it, the same it's thing. Yeah. Human nature thing. I, I just want to say, we just, the, really infuriating thing is the pretense that we aren't all human and that some of us are you know that 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 
by profession, we can stratify one group out as particularly noble. And, and the reality is it just is not the case. And we have to factor that in to our deliberations and understanding of what's happening in the world. Well, that's the interesting thing is, is that um, building systems to uh, overcome the problems of us being human is something that we do a lot in in medicine and and in industry we just need to take it to the next level where it also applies to those who are making decisions about how these technologies be applied if you work on an oil rig there are multiple processes in place everywhere Mm. to ensure that it doesn't blow up through somebody making a simple human error the equivalent of locking the keys in the car accidentally Mm. leaving a valve open because there are systems in place as there are in aviation, which is something else we should get onto. Yes. But when you, um, so you finished medical school, what, where do you do your internship and residency? So I did quite well in medical school. And... Uh, By which you mean you won some prizes? Did you get some yes. awards? Yeah, what, yes. what was that? Oh, just, you know, the whole kind of British thing about, prizes and gongs and things so i i i finished like at hogwarts. You know, I, sorry like at hogwarts yeah exactly exactly yeah. all that stuff um so i was sort of supposed to be on track for becoming a consultant physician so i did some reasonably kind of prestigious jobs in uh general internal medicine around london uh, I did the, I took the uh, membership of the Royal College of Physicians, uh, became a, a sort of MRCP, which is the, at the time was the entrance uh, exam into mm. uh, physician, into higher physician training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I just thought, God, you know, I'm just not going to be able to survive in a hospital environment. Uh, so Why? my wife, uh, because it was, too constraining and because i found the kafka-esque nature of the hospital to be too infuriating yeah so the 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 red tape around trying to get patients treated was not something that excited you no and the fact that uh and just a tremendous identification with patients who are essentially, I mean, you know, for people who haven't come across Kafka's The Trial, it's the the novel where a man's on trial and he doesn't know what he's on trial for and what the process is, and it's completely inexplicable. Uh, and to me, that 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 really is the situation of the patient in the hospital. You know, all these things happen, people come and see you, and, and you get whisked off for this, that, and the other, and it can appear completely incomprehensible. Um, and I, I just found that uh, uh, system to be so constraining. And it was clear that to get on in that, I was going to have to make compromises that I wasn't prepared to do. So, uh, so uh, my wife, who's also a doctor from the same year as me in, at St. George's, uh, we, uh, 1995, we went uh, to uh solomon islands uh in the southwest when when were you married around before about then yeah 1995 yeah okay so you'd finished medical school you you were a couple 91 yeah we finished medical school in 91 we did our house jobs we did right two or three years were you an item back in the medical school yeah yeah from the first week of med school well we're b you know we're we're b she's bird i'm berger well, so that's, a, we were, that's, an, that's as efficient a way as I've heard of. Uh, exactly. Of exactly. Well, we were on the same corridor, you see, in the, in the, in the residence. So makes sense. Easy. You didn't have to walk, yes. walk too far. Yes. Well, you were, so. you were very lucky by all accounts. Yeah, exactly. And still are by all accounts. Yeah. Especially yeah. hers. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, so we went to the soul mines for a bit, which was, a uh, fantastic experience. How did you uh, choose the Solomon Islands? You put a pin uh, in the No, there was a guy uh, called John Colley who was a doctor who's now a screenwriter 
who uh, he's actually screenwriter a lot of Hollywood films now. He had had a column in the Observer newspaper every Sunday uh, mm. talking about his experiences as a doctor in the Solomon Islands. I don't know how he'd ended up there anyway. So I thought, oh, it's absolutely fantastic. So mm. I just phoned directory inquiries because we didn't have the internet then. I just phoned directory inquiries and started ringing around the hospitals in the Solomon Islands. Uh, and eventually got through to the medical superintendent at one and I said, oh, we'd love to come out. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. Well, just turn up at the airport and, you know, things a bit easier then. <laughs> just turn now, up at the airport. Was this, what, was this on a rotary dial phone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It must have cost a fortune to ring the song. Yeah, yeah, it did, it did. And, of course, it was all middle-of-the-night stuff from Britain and lots of sounds, like, oh, you know, lots of static down to the... South Pacific is quite, you know, quite fun. Yeah, that's that's so, very uh, exotic. And yeah, and yeah, absolutely. Do you still have the articles that Collie wrote? Yeah, I've got some somewhere. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And they were they were very good. So we actually went to that hospital, um, oh. and uh, you know, great, fascinating, fascinating experience. Um, and then. Uh, then we came back to Europe. How long, how long um, were you in Solomon Islands for? We were only there for four months because in the meantime, I have managed to uh, sort out a job, which I don't really know why I'd sorted it out, but I had sorted it out at the University Hospital of Geneva. Right. So while you were on the phone to the Solomon Islands, it occurred to you too. Mm. Was this through a connection in London? No. No, you just got into. Well, touch I thought. Well, I'd I'd grown up partly in Switzerland. I spoke French. Uh, and oh, you've been I keeping thought, that one quiet. I'd heard about the oh, yeah. I didn't know that you'd speak yeah, yeah. French as well. Yeah. So I thought, well, that'd be fun, and then I could work there, and maybe Carol could work in Amacy or whatever. So, so we tried that, and it it didn't really, it didn't really jive. I mean, my God, you know. Swiss hospitals, uh, so and that didn't work at all. Um, so, uh, and Carol was about to get a job, so I resigned and we came back to Britain, did GP training. Right. So just to sort of wrap these ideas together around mm. what was driving your decisions at this stage, because one, one possibility here is that... Um, Berger and his his wife are quite mad. You know, they've they've yeah. they've finished medicine. He has opportunity in London. He has a bit of the golden boy smell about him with the with the prizes yeah. from medical school and could have set up a very handy practice as a, a, a member of the Royal College of Physicians, but starts phoning the Solomon Islands and Geneva, <laughs> get me out of here. Looking, get me out of here. Looking for something. <laughs> And, yeah. and what it's reminding me of is in reading The House of God with mm. the psychiatrist who, who wrote it under the pseudonym of Samuel Shem, mm. and one of the rules of The House of God, uh, which was The House of God was the university hospital, yeah. one of the rules was that um, we must do everything we can to do as little medicine to the patients as possible. Absolutely. And... It seems to me mm. as though your rejection of this hospital system is from mm. the same breed of thinking that the medical system has the potential to do so much good. Yes. But often the structure of it is not serving the patients the way that it should be. Very much so. And, um, uh, I mean, I, I, I came to the conclusion as a senior house officer in medicine in London, that, uh, uh, which I haven't had cause to significantly alter, that probably about 20% of the things that we were doing for patients were making a really significant difference. The problem was it was very hard to see which 20% which it was. So you end up doing an awful lot of things. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, I, everybody from our, our generation, every doctor from our generations read The House of God, of course. Um, uh, and I think there's an awful lot of truth in that. So 
defending patients from the system becomes a, a, a bit of a theme. And in how did how well, can, can I just say that's that's the role of the primary care physician. Well, that's 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 what I'm thinking is you did your general train train general practice yeah. training. Um, yes. and how did and as a GP, you're often the gatekeeper yes. to, to the to the rest of the system. And so that's a it's a great role for somebody who's trying to trying to get people to the right place mm. and not to the to the wrong place and find like-minded people to look after their patients. So how did you end up as a director of the British Medical Journal? Um, it, it, uh, they advertised. And so I applied. You're, you're an opportunity taker, aren't you? Yes. They advertised. I literally, I mean, I didn't know anybody there. Uh, I'd written a couple of articles, a couple of editorials for them. So you were already um, wanting to express an opinion about how the medical system yeah. was operating? Yes. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, literally I applied and uh, I got it, which really surprised me, I have to say. Uh, and I was actually appointed as the BMAs. So the BMA owns the BMJ group. And I was yep. one of the two BMA appointed non-executive directors on the board of the BMJ, um, which again, you know, there is that kind of, uh, a delicious irony that uh, it was the BMA that kept my grandfather out of Britain. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and so were you, a, were you a welcome director around that table? Did they realise what they were getting in terms of uh, someone who wasn't going to just necessarily go along with um, medical uh, conformity? Yeah. I mean, that's what they said. Uh, that's why they wanted me, uh, they said. Um so I was interviewed by uh, Hamish Meldrum, Dr. Hamish Meldrum, who was the chairman of the BMA at the time. Was he a Scotsman? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the yeah. Scots don't mind mixing things up a bit. No, no. And he wanted a bit of aggro. So yep. yeah, and it was a it was a really good. It was very good for me. I hope it was good for them. Uh, uh, you know, sort of challenging preconceptions, etc. It was. It was also at the time where we were being sued by Wakefield. Andrew so Wakefield. Wakefield. For people who, who have not followed the uh, career of the infamous... He was the gastroenterologist at the Royal Free in London, the Royal Free Hospital, who wrote what subsequently turned out to be a fraudulent paper uh, in The Lancet in 1998, I think it was, uh, identifying... Uh, uh, basically drawing the link between the MMR vac measles vaccine, the MMR vaccine and autism in kids. And shortly after I joined the BMJ, we uh, ran a series by the excellent investigative journalist Brian Deere, which is, exposed that fraud once and for all uh and actually eventually caused the lancet to withdraw the paper although it took them a while anyway he spent a long time uh trying to sue us uh from the us must so, have been a bit uh, of an, a, a bit of a, a worry for the journal's directors in a financial sense and um, yes. would have taken up a lot of brain cycles having to deal with the litigation yes. process yes that. it's an incredible time waster uh, it was it was vexatious litigation. Uh, eventually, it got dismissed under the uh, under the Texas anti-slap legislation. So it eventually came to nothing. Uh, but it was it was something that occupied a lot of our time and mind share. For me, so yeah, so and that I mean that for me has been very ironic because I you know I've latterly been kind of uh, slandered as an anti-vaxxer. Uh, for having, you know, written about the the problems with the AstraZeneca vaccine as it as it came up in the early part of the pandemic, it's difficult to now imagine the pre-vaccine for COVID world unless you have a child under the age of five, of course, because um, of course. they don't have uh, the the vaccine in in Australia or the UK. Mm -hmm. the, the 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 sum total of all of these things has left you in a position of wanting to be an advocate and 
Why is it that you chose to come to Australia? Uh, there were a whole variety of reasons. Uh, partly, we were both, my wife and I, Carol and I, were both a bit bored with being the kind of medical civil servant, public servant that general practice in the UK has become. Uh, we both wanted to do more medicine. Uh, we also were very aware of uh, the limitations of Britain for our children. Uh, and so we also took a very long-term sort of geopolitical viewpoint, uh, looking at the upcoming century for our planet, which is going, looking troubled. Uh, and we took, we had the opinion that for us, for our children, uh, that relocating our locus of operations, as I put it, to the Southern Hemisphere looked sensible. So, so I gather your dinner time conversation was a little different to what, what, did, what did you think about that episode of the bill? Yeah, it was. It's very, you know, this is, this is, it, this is going to ship pretty quickly. Where are we going to go? And uh, you became and refugees. We became, yeah, kind of. I mean, we were in our mid forties. We had a nice house. The kids were in a private school. We were GPs in a nice practice, which we just built uh, the building. Uh, and we thought, this is just not going anywhere. If we're going to leave, we have to leave now. Uh, and then I was on a train back from the BMJ board meeting in London. To Devon where we lived and I, I, the train was late and I was reading the newspaper I was reading the times and I got to the birth marriages and deaths and it said it said and I was so bored I was reading the birth marriages and deaths so I'm scanning down the marriages and it said Kirsten Bradby director of admissions Woodstock School India marries Ed Bevan well it's interesting so I googled Woodstock School India, which is a school in the Himalayas. And uh, uh oh, well, that sounds interesting. So looked oh. it up. It's 150 years old. So uh, anyway, cut a long story short, we came via a year in India, living in the Himalayas. Of course you did. I'm, I'm a bit to Australia. <laughs> you only spent a year in India after yeah. seeing a random line in the back of a newspaper in. Yes. Uh, while you're waiting exactly so you exactly. saw a train leaving for india and you decided to jump on it yes and it was great it was a fantastic experience living living at seven thousand feet on a ridge in the foothills of the himalayas uh meeting lots of amazing people that was a good experience for us so berger are you risk averse or are you actually have a huge appetite for risk because i'm getting confused about now because you oh, seem yeah. very worried about what might happen to your patients but yes you decide you're going to ship your kids and your wife off to yeah india to the himalayas on yeah. way to an unknown life in australia so what what where, where, well, it's where just like, positioned as far as taking just, risks is concerned i mean it's just that it, you know i just don't take you just don't take stupid risks you don't take needless risks. You take risks where there's, which you which you can mitigate, and where you think the payoff is is good. But you don't take stupid risks. And allowing the coronavirus to spread in the way that we've allowed it to spread is a stupid risk. It is just, it's dense. It is offensively stupid. And that's what I don't like. I mean, I, as you know, in 2019. I flew a single-engined aircraft from the USA across the North Atlantic to Europe, across the whole of Russia to Japan, down to Australia, and then my son took it on to New Zealand. So that's not an enterprise without risk. But we've had all the risk mitigated. Uh, there was still some risk left. It was like, we'll take it. But it wasn't a stupid risk. 
it wasn't, you know, and there was a big benefit to it. You just don't take stupid risks. And, and what's happening now, what has happened in the last three years, as I say, I find it, I find the stupidity of it offensive. It doesn't just irritate me. I just find it offensively stupid what is happening on the public health level, that we take a, that we allow a virus, which every day we find out more and more has multi-system effects. Uh, and we it bathe the population in this virus repeatedly. So yeah, we'll do a more of a deep dive on the pandemic a bit yeah. later, but I think it's really interesting for people to take a breath now and understand why what's driven your advocacy where the sort of seat of it came from and then we can talk mm. more about specifically how that got applied uh mm. during re refugee advocacy during um the covid pandemic and where mm. it leads to from here because i think what we're determined to do is in the midst of war in the midst of plague in the midst of famine mm. Uh, is to also um, do as much as we can for others whilst living a happy life. Yeah, because there can be some contentment, even in the midst of turmoil, even in the midst of terrible things. And we know that so well in medicine. I, I, I think it's finding the the optimism amidst the measures that we need to take, and even in the face of overwhelming stupidity. Uh, we can form a community of people who will support one another and yeah, who will absolutely. one another. Because if the government won't do it, then we have to kind of take this into our own hands in terms of, A, embarrassing the decision makers about the decisions mm. they're making um, to stick up for people who can't stick up for themselves and, B, providing information, direct support where we can to uh, the people who are, who are carrying the burden of this at the moment. Yeah, and I think that's that's been the most important thing uh, for me in all of this is that a lot of people have felt uh, reassured, less alone, uh, and that they're not mad because, you know, we all look around us or, or certainly I look around myself, look around every day and go, you know, who's mad? Is it me or is it everybody else? Um, uh, and knowing that there are other people who think as you do uh, uh, is, is a real reassurance. So, yeah, I think you might be a bit mad. A bit mad. I'll take that. <laughs> Finished lemonade tells me all I need to know about yesterday. I'm back here again. I told myself I'd stay a while away.
So 